2: This episode is brought to you by Bumper.com. Buying a car doesn't have to be so intimidating. Bumper.com is here for you, the buyers. With just a few clicks, it can help give you a comprehensive vehicle report that highlights any red flags. So wherever you're buying a car from, whether it's a dealership or a used marketplace, you can go in knowing Bumper.com has your back. Make your car buying experience smoother and smarter. Check
0: out Bumper.com slash podcast.
2: Cryptozoology is science. Surely searching for the solution to mysteries is part of science. But is cryptozoology? Or is it something else? Is it just a game? The intersection of science and cryptozoology will be discussed in the next two episodes of Monster Talk. In this episode, part one, featuring Dr. Darren Naish. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and together with my co-hosts, Dr. Karen Stolzno and Ben Radford, we talk about monsters, science, and the vast landscape of mystery where such stories grow. Today, we're happy to have a well-known figure in the world of science and cryptozoology, Dr. Darren Nash. This is a two-part look at the intersection of cryptozoology and science, and in our next episode, we'll be talking with some other voices on this topic. Benjamin Radford wasn't able to be a part of this interview, but he plans to be back next episode. This is a meaty interview with surprising information in it, so we'll get started right after these messages.
3: This is an EVP I recorded
1: last night.
0: How are you doing? I'm a ghost. What's up?
1: You guys can't possibly ignore that type of... Hey, who are you? What are you doing in
0: my... EVPs are the result of pareidolia and cross-modulation combined with the listener's hopes and expectations. What does this have to do with science? I think you just got skeptically pwned. Well, gotta go. See you in a while. Six, six, six. Skepticallypwned.com
1: Where false claims get kicked in the nuts.
0: (laughs) Space. The galactic universe is comprised of literally dozens of stars in hundreds of galaxies. Man has waited millions of light years for the infinite infinite rays of the cosmos to reach us. Yet, it can all disappear in a parsec. The distance is... You have no idea what you're talking about, do you? What? Galactic universe? Dozens of stars? Parsec and light years as measurements of time? Uh... You know what? You need to go to the star party. The what? The Atlanta Skeptics Star Party. What's that? You really are clueless. Here, read this. Okay, let's see. Please join the Atlanta Skeptics on Thursday, September second, two 2010 for stargazing, food, drinks, and amazing conversations. Held at the Emory Math and Science Center in Atlanta, Georgia, astronomers Pamela Gay and Fraser Cain will be hosting this amazing night. Ooh, I love those guys. Oh yeah, keep going. Pamela and Fraser will be leading guests in exploration of the skies using the observatory at Emory. Musician, podcaster, and science lover George Robb will also be providing entertainment. Who's that? Never mind. Keep reading. This event is in honor of Jeff Metcalf, the blue-collar scientist. Jeff succumbed to liver cancer in 2008, and all proceeds will go toward the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in Jeff's name. Nice, no? Yes. Yes, indeed. Keep reading. For those attending DragonCon, this is the night before the craziness begins. Go to Atlantaskeptics.com slash Star Party for full information. <laughs> Remember, two meteorites. Don't make a meteor wrong. Don't add anything. Just just read. Sorry. The Atlanta Skeptics Star Party with Pamela Gay, Fraser King, and George Robb. Thursday, September 2nd at 7.30 p.m. You gonna go? Oh yeah. Just make sure you listen mostly. Cool? Cool. Atlantaskeptics.com slash star.
1: Monster dog.
2: Darren Nash is a paleozoologist, a freelance author, and a science writer at the Tetrapod Zoology Column on Science Blogs. He's affiliated with the University of Portsmouth. He obtained a degree in geology and then gained a PhD in vertebrate paleontology at the same institution. He mostly works on Cretaceous dinosaurs and pterosaurs and, quote, also messes around with swimming giraffes, fossil marine reptiles, British big cats, and stuff like that. Darren, welcome to Monster Talk. What's your personal take on cryptozoology, and how did you get associated with that area of study?
3: It's something I've always been interested in, and I've, I've always seen it as part of my kind of broader interest in zoology um, as as a whole. I'm still kind of unclear on exactly how I how I feel about it, whether the, even using the term cryptozoology is a is a good thing, um, because of the um, Associations it has with you know pseudoscience and and such, but at the moment I would say my, my feeling is that a lot of qualified biologists and zoologists who who do normal everyday biology or zoology actually do do cryptozoology um, because by definition cryptozoology is meant to be the study of species known from anecdotal evidence. And if you look at the um, the roster of you know creatures, alleged creatures that cryptozoologists are interested in, they're not all lake monsters and man-like apes and, and so on, but they, they do include fairly dull small creatures that don't, you know, the normal scientists wouldn't have a, a problem with. So um, I actually think, I think there's a substantial overlap between normal zoology and, and cryptozoology, um, but yeah, the, the the fact that the, the term is, is so often associated only with monster hunting and lake monsters and Sasquatch and so on, I think, I think that is a problem. So um, yeah, I, I I kind of <laughs> I find it annoying. I, there's, there's many subjects where I sort of sit on the fence and I can't decide, you know, what I think is the best um, uh, perspective and, and on this particular issue, I still haven't made up my mind. Now, I don't mind, you know, saying that I do cryptozoological research, or even saying sometimes that I am a cryptozoologist, but, um, but you know, with the caveat that that you can be a proper scientist. If I finally use that term. And do cryptozoology. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you can be a cryptozoologist and actually do proper peer reviewed science. But um, the term cryptozoologist and, crypt- and cryptozoology, yeah, they, they are they are kind of problematic terms. Mm.
1: And Darren, do you think that there is a distinction between cryptozoology and ethnobiology?
3: Um Ethnobiology, well, uh, that's just um, I think I, I think that's quite a useful term but um, it's kind of kind of replacing cryptozoology and it doesn't really seem to mean anything particularly different. So far as I understand, it just means investigating um, the uh, creatures that are, that are um, purported to exist. So, so again, anecdotal creatures, so um, and, um, you know, feel free to tell me otherwise. I, I may be missing something here, but I can't see that it's really any different from Conventional cryptozoology? Do you think that's the case?
2: Well, that's a good question. I, I, I've noticed uh, several people with PhDs referring to ethnobiology, and it seems to parallel the way I've always thought of cryptozoology. And I wondered if maybe it was a more uh, reputable term.
3: Yeah, more I acceptable probably, term. Yeah, I, I can't, there is. You know, you can you can see in some quarters there's a move to kind of make a kind of more scientific terminology. Like another example is the term cryptid. Everyone throws this around nowadays. Um, and it's almost it's almost kind of become okay to okay we might not the people that are interested in cryptozoology they're not necessarily saying that oh I believe in you know name your favorite mystery animal um, because you don't want to you know put your neck on the on the block and say I am advocating the existence of dot, dot dot the Loch Ness monster, Sasquatch, or whatever. But it seems to be okay to talk of cryptids and the concept of the cryptid is kind of like a crystallized. You know, you, you, you've kind of basically got the basic features of a, a species that you're saying actually exists. And should we really be playing that hard and fast? Should we be, you know, talking in that kind of black and white language when we don't really know that we're pursuing real creatures in the first place anyway? Um, yeah, I think the terms ethno-known and ethnobology, they might be part of the same, the same kind of problem people trying to make... Um, Sometimes make this out to be more solid than than it really is.
1: And is there a? Oh, Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Gary. I was just going to ask uh, further to that question: Is there a, a more scientifically acceptable term than cryptid
3: that's around? Um, no, there isn't. But there's currently a debate going on right now. There's there's a few uh, responses um, floating around in the literature. Actually, none of this is published yet. But. Um, there are people who are just arguing that we shouldn't use the term cryptid at all because it, because it just implies that... You know how there's this long uh, history in cryptozoology of people coming up with different classification schemes mm. for all of the sea monster sightings in the world, all of the late monster sightings, all of the mystery um, primate sightings, and then grouping them into distinct little categories. And mm. you say you've got you know species A and species B or whatever. Um once you start kind of doing that you're, and, and, you, and you call these, you know, people normally call these little categories cryptids, you're kind of crystallizing the idea that you've got like a real tangible entity there and uh, in most cases, um, there's probably, you know, we're probably, we probably haven't gone that far down the road until, you know, we're probably not ready to do that. So, um, yeah, myself and um, Charles Paxton, who's a fisheries ecologist, very interesting cryptozoology, and um, Michael Woodley. Uh, who's a molecular ecologist who um, also has an academic interest in in cryptozoology. We're having a a debate about this subject at the moment, and it will appear in the literature. And, um, yeah, we're going to be holding a conference in a couple of years that's uh, hoping to address this subject as well. So, uh, yeah, my thoughts on it aren't crystallized, but...
1: (laughs) (laughs) Once a, a new species has been found that's been referred to as potentially a cryptid, would you still call it uh, a cryptid that has been proven to exist, or, or would you not use that term anymore?
3: Yeah, the, the idea is that um, the cr- cryptid is the name you use for it when it's um, only known anecdotally. And then mm-hmm. once, supposing it becomes uh, you know, verified through the procuring of a specimen or whatever, then no longer is it a cryptid. But... Um, mm-hmm. A lot of animals that, I, I'm sure you've heard this before, this is in all the books, and yeah, this is quite well-known to anyone interested in cryptozoology. A, lo- a lot of animals that are officially recognized today, people always talk about, you know, the Akapi and the Komodo Dragon and so on, they were cryptids um, historically. So, so I, I'm interested in the idea that, yeah, some things today uh, were cryptids in the past. And if you're writing about... The um, knowledge of those animals prior to their official discovery. Should you actually be referring to them as cryptids? So Wards, for example, was the should you regard the Okapi as a cryptid prior to its 1901 um, discovery? And um, I kind I kind of think you should. I, I think you know if it's if you're investigating an organism that's known only from anecdotal data, well, cryptids Ward is the investigation of anecdotal data, and cryptids are the names for those entities. So yeah, I think I think the terms I think the term cryptozoology and cryptids probably should be more widely used. But like I say, as I said at the start, that there is this unfortunate um, implication that that uh, this 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 uh, link that uh, cryptozoology mm. has with um, stuff that's not exactly uh, mainstream science. Mm.
2: Our show comes from a very sceptical position, you know. Yeah. But um, and it sounds like you yourself. Uh, You're using a lot of caution in your terminology. So, do you consider yourself to be a a, a skeptic of cryptids uh, in general?
3: Yeah. Well, well, I I hope so. Um, I try and uh, be skeptical about kind of everything. Uh, (laughs) um, I I would say that I certainly fall into the trap of favoring certain ideas because I, you know, personally find them appealing. But, but don't we all? I mean, um, yeah. In terms of my approach to Mystery animals, Um my um, approach has always been that, you know, go where the evidence takes you and we certainly, as scientists, should be looking looking at the evidence empirically and, you know, not being guided by our prejudices or preconceptions or whatever. So, let's say I'm interested in investigating sea monster, Cadbrasaurus or Sasquatch or whatever, um, um, you know there's there's data to look at that data can include eyewitness accounts and trackways or you know sonar readings whatever um, you, you don't have to have any preconceived conclusion you, you can you can analyze that data and see where it takes you and I would certainly say that for some mystery animals um, my feeling at the moment is that there's there's the implication from some of the data that real things are there, but for many other cases the evidence is wanting. But you know, if you're interested in investigation of the evidence, if you're interested in this, you know, approaching this from a scientific point of view, that's fine. And even if even if all of the eyewitness data is nonsense, and you know that there really isn't an animal at the bottom of the reports, and there certainly are mystery animals around the world, but that is the case. I still think you know scientists should be really interested in those cases because we can learn so much about things like uh, witness perception, witness bias, things like why do people want to believe these animals? Are they seeing something else and making a perfectly rational misinterpretation? Those are really good questions and they are you know, huge interest to uh, well not only people interested in cryptozoology but psychologists and sociologists and and stuff. So So cryptozoology, I think, has a lot to to tell us, not only about diversity in the natural world and so on, but also about our own approaches to the natural world, how we study it, and, yeah, a lot of stuff,
2: I think. One of the questions I think about quite a bit is, cryptozoology in the hands of trained scientists uh, versus cryptozoology in the hands of the amateur. Is there value? Is there value in the amateur cryptozoologist? Not just the armchair, but the people who... Uh, you know they have a day job, whatever, and then they. But yeah. on, when they get a chance, they go down the Amazon or they.
3: Yeah.
2: They go to Thailand or Tibet.
3: Well, yeah, uh, that. And to be honest, that is the, ma- the majority of people who call themselves cryptozoologists. That that is, you know, their their approach. And I've always said that that. Um, I mean, obviously, I I can you know, without wanting to sound arrogant, you know, I've got become technically qualified and and you know have a like a proper perspective. Yeah, you know, in terms of in terms of being able to employ critical thinking and this kind of stuff, and you know, if I'm interested in evaluating reports, I won't write a popular book on it. I'll just think about putting it into the peer-reviewed literature. Um, I think that even if we encourage scientists and more scientists to, to to look at cryptozoology kind of scientifically, that does not in any way diminish the role that that, that amateurs can can play. And um, I mean, for a start, all of the uh, evidence, the the um, the data that 's now being analyzed by by scientists qualified scientists has almost all of it been been collected by people who would regard themselves as kind of um, well they might think of themselves as scientists i 've had this discussion with lauren Coleman, actually um, but they they're not you know they 're not pretending to be above their station they know that the the, um, the they're kind of like amateur scientists, if you like. They don't have a university position or, or whatever. Um, I, I do think that sometimes we do have to kind of rein them in or encourage um, kind of more uh, critical appraisal of um, the the way they come to conclusions and also to be more cautious in terms of what they're prepared to um, because I, I mean, I, I always say that one of the biggest problems with cryptozoology is not necessarily with the kind of raw data, the eyewitness data that we, that we have, but it's the conclusions that the people build on the data. There's, there's, there's a thousand, you know, hypotheses and ideas out there in the cryptozoological literature about all manner of creatures surviving from prehistory or coming from different dimensions or, you know, <laughs> you <laughs> name it, look, every conceivable idea has, has been out there. And um, I, think, I think that mostly is the problem. It's like, what you, you, if, you, if, if you're an interested amateur, you're out there, you know, finding historical records of Bigfoot or collecting eyewitness reports from people firsthand or, or even going out there in the field and, you know, investigating the, the, the cases, that, that's brilliant. That's really worthy work. You know, we need, we need more of that. But the, it's the conclusions that, that people sometimes reach that um, I think don't really do us any favours. Yeah, cryptozoology definitely does suffer from that. It also suffers from the kind of people that it attracts, by which I mean there's this kind of, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really bothered by the by the creationists who, who seem to have quite a large stake in cryptozoology these days and I don't really understand what can be done about it. <laughs> Some people say that, you know, we shouldn't be prepared to do anything about it, but but, you know, as a... Uh, as as a scientist with biological, zoological, and you know paleontological interests, and it really makes me very
2: unhappy. <laughs> well, it, 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 uh, people who have this interest don't like to see their their hobby or or their passion repurposed uh, for decidedly unscientific reasons, right? So yeah, that's uh, it, it's it's troubling to me too. I, <laughs> it's a frequent theme here, and it's something that a lot of people, even I'm, you know, we're involved in the skeptics community, but a lot of people in skepticism don't understand how deeply uh, creationists, young Earth creationists especially, yeah. are entrenched into cryptozoology, especially anything to do with uh, uh, extant uh, dinosaurs or yeah. uh, you know marine reptiles, that sort of thing.
1: Yeah. And, um, Darren, have you had any personal encounters with these people, with these creatures? Yeah, regularly, I'm
3: sorry to say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was having a discussion just, just – well, sorry, discussion is the wrong term. I was having an exchange <laughs> just a couple of days ago with um, – I think he's called James Whitcomb, a guy who who's written a book on um, the rope and this alleged pterosaur-like creature from uh, from New Guinea. And um, like like um, similar-minded people, he's um, you know fairly convinced that the eyewitness evidence indicates firstly that you've got this animal and it looks. You know, in this case, it's, a, it's got a 20-foot wingspan, it's bioluminescent. it's got a long tail, it breeds fire or something. Um, so, they, they, first of all, they think there's that real animal. Secondly, they think that it can be identified as, uh, very specifically, in this case, as a surviving pterosaur. And thirdly, it's kind of all linked with the, their particular view of um, history. I don't want to say evolutionary history because, obviously, they reject um, the reality of evolution. Um, and, oh, like, you know, it's like, where do you start? Because the, okay, something like um, the suggestion that pterosaurs might be alive from the paleontological record is a non-starter. We can be very confident that, that that's really not the case or certainly there's no evidence that might support it. But in cryptozoology, the more important thing is is the eyewitness evidence. That should be your kind of, you know, your core data. And in all these cases where people have, Built these huge houses of cards. Um, the eyewitness data is is really poor. Um, certainly, you know. Okay, maybe there, maybe there's a suggestion that there might be some unusual creature at the bottom of this. Um, that's probably the case with many cryptozoological entities. But uh, you're really going too far in saying that it's uh, the particular creature that they that they want it to be. These these stories from from New Guinea about living pterodactyls and stuff are. Pretty poor. They, they come from extremely unreliable sources. They're often extremely vague. You know, people seeing lights at night and, and saying that it's a bioluminescent pterodactyl. I mean, I don't need to. You know, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, but, but, <laughs> <it's>
2: just... <laughs> but maybe you know, I haven't actually talked to many uh, people on that side of the the argument. I'd like to ask them how effective those those tools are for conversion. Uh, you know, you know what I mean. I, I mean, I've 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 seen plenty of, of cryptozoologists interested in Bigfoot, but I've never been offered a Bigfoot gospel tract. You know, just uh...
3: oh, well, they probably do exist. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, as obviously, I, I live in the UK, so I, I'm not affected by creationism and creationist as much as as you probably are. I, I find it interesting that that being interested in animals and working on prehistoric animals. In, in particular, I, I think that um, the well, Pallion told us in particular really seem to be kind of on the front line in terms of, of, of creationists. I've been at you know conferences and exhibitions and stuff where you actually have creationists come up and engage you in um, discussion because they they see the skeleton of the dinosaur or the pterosaur or whatever, and that's kind of like their hook, the sort of their, their kind of first thing to to like attack you with because you know it's a big obvious thing. There's no there's no pretending that, um, let's say you see the skeleton of a dinosaur, in many cases it, like half of it might be reconstructed, You know, and, and I'm sure you understand how the, the reconstruction is done entirely kind of in a sensible, logical way, you know, you look at related animals or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But That's their kind of like first point of attack. Come in, say, oh, you've, you've fabricated evidence or whatever. But then within like five minutes of the conversation, they're talking to you about things like well, they, they somehow, I've, I've experienced several times, they they start talking about things like, you know, the age of the earth and um, the, the function of the brain in humans and basically things to do with, you know, the, plate, the, the specific place of man in the universe. And, um, um, it just occurs to me, like, why are you talking to a paleontologist about these questions? This, this, Okay, we can answer those questions. We can have a discussion if you like. But but you should be talking to, you know, geneticists or psychologists or people who work on brain anatomy, brain function, that kind of thing. And, and they don't do that. I've noticed they don't do that. They, they attack what they see as an easy target, paleontology. So, um, so I don't know. When I, I've spoken to, I, I remember talking to an animal behaviorist, a colleague, colleague of mine, you know, what, what his approach was with, with creation. he lives in Canada, and um, he just never had any experience with them whatsoever, whereas I, as a paleontologist, feel that, like, you know, actually get a lot of interaction with them. So, um, yeah, maybe that's I have a, good a point. Of... Sorry?
1: That's a really good point. I hadn't uh, thought of that before, that you guys are always the ones who are bombarded with these uh, claims and questions.
3: Well, that's right, and and I'm sure you're aware of these museums that have been built, specifically, creationist museums.
2: Oh, yeah. Mm. Museums,
3: obviously, in scare quotes, and they are entirely, you know, dinosaur dioramas, like Jesus riding on a brontosaurus, that kind of stuff. (laughs) They they aren't about, they don't have a wing devoted to the human body or the, the anatomy of the brain or genetics or whatever. It's all like the Garden of Eden and prehistoric animals and tyrannosaurus rexate watermelons, that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, m- yeah, maybe I have um, uh, a yeah, more negative, on it than, than <laughs> many biologists. But, but then, like I say, cryptozoology does seem to have this strong link with, with creationism and um, it's difficult to know what to do about it. It does tarnish the subject as a whole.
2: Let's talk about some of the cryptids out there um, that people claim to see. Um, which ones do you think are the most plausible
3: Yeah, um, well, I'll say to start with, I I think it's pretty likely, and I I assume, in my experience, most people kind of agree with me, whether they're interested in cryptozool or not. Um, I would say that that there are large animals in the oceans that that remain to be discovered. Um, I think we can be pretty confident about that because we still find new sharks, rays, whales, Uh, relatively recently. You've got, you know, new species that have been named within the past couple of years. Um, Every study that's ever been done of uh, looking at discovery rates over time, they all find, you know, people generate these graphs plotting discovery over time. They all find that there are more discoveries yet to come. Numbers range from anywhere between, I think, 5 and 50. So everyone agrees there's some. And then there's there's a really good... um, body of eyewitness reports some of which are extremely trustworthy as in they come from you know qualified biologists, people who have got a lot, lot of experience of looking at marine animals and judging distances, that kind of stuff um, so th- I think there's, there's new things to come in and see but but what they are well that I can't answer um, uh, this kind of you know linking back to what I said much earlier about cryptids and the idea that you've got like distinct little categories of creatures people have ever since Bernard Hooverman's um, Books of the 50s and 60s, people have tended to kind of think that there, there's like you know certain distinct species of uh, distinct species of long-bodied fish, a distinct species of crocodile-like uh, marine reptile. Um, we we can't we can't really go that that far at the moment. Um, so as to what these animals are, I really don't know. But I think but I think there are some. So that's kind of a loose, easy answer to begin with. Um, mm-hmm. As as for others, well at the moment. One, I would say that I'm. Um, what's the right word? I don't want to say impressed, but I don't want to say confident. A, 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 cre- a creature that I do find particularly interesting, and I do think it's very likely. Um, I, <laughs> I think it's fairly likely that we, that we might uh, establish its reality fairly soon, is Orang Pendek, this um, red-furred um, hominid from um, Borneo and perhaps Sinatra and other places.
2: Uh, wow. In, so- yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would not have guessed you would have thought that so is it, really? you, nice. you, you find the evidence compelling?
3: Well I have some inside data you see so. Oh, hello, mm-hmm. okay <laughs> uh, um, Do you tell? Well, how much, what, what, how much can I say? Well, uh, first of all I think again the eyewitness evidence is, is pretty credible, comes from pretty good sources and seems fairly consistent and so on um, and there's there's some hair data and there is actually a paper in the works um, describing and analyzing the hair, which I'm sure this is going to sound very familiar, you know, the the Sasquatch literature and such. But, um, yeah, uh, without, you know, I, I do not want to sound too confident, but at the moment I'm, I'm thinking that there's reasonable grounds that this is actually a real animal. It is a real undiscovered hominid. Um, but uh, time will tell, and we have to get some things in the peer-reviewed literature first.
2: Well, that is exciting, I have to say, because um, it- As a skeptic, I I am also a huge enthusiast uh, Mm. uh, for cryptozoology, or otherwise I wouldn't be doing this show.
3: Yeah, yeah. that's (laughs) a really important point to make. I've heard you make it before, but people, well, kind of... You can give it uh, lip
2: service without actually meaning it, right? Okay, no. (laughs) (laughs) Finding a living hominid or even just a different kind of ape is super. That's awesome. Yeah. so, do you think the uh, the hair have they I don't know how much you know about the quantities they've uh, uncovered. We we one of our very first episode, we talked to Todd Disotel, who does extensive DNA analysis, and he said that current times they can do something like fifty percent of the time they can get DNA from the hair without the root. So, do you know if uh, if the hair samples they're looking at have they have they taken it to that level or?
3: There are plans to do that next. At the moment, the analysis has been done is on um, just gross morphology. But um, even that, certainly very interesting. I kind of want to imply that it's compelling, but that's probably a little bit too strong. But um, yeah, the next thing to do is to see if, if DNA can be extracted. But um, I've, I've heard conflicting reports on how easy it is to get DNA out of um, hominid hairs. There's, there's some data indicating that it's really hard to get it out of gorilla hairs, for example. So, um, but, but yeah, no, certainly that's, that's, that's planned. There aren't, there aren't many hairs, there's a handful of them. Um, and they have been uh, compared to, well, certainly all of the um, native mammals, like you know the, the known species, like cats and civets and boar and, and humans. Sure, and so sure. Yeah, and um, yeah. I, I shouldn't say any more because this is this is a work in progress. And
2: you'll <laughs> excite our listeners for sure, right?
3: Yeah. Oh, cool. Think, well, yeah. But <laughs> you watch the space. But, um, it, it would be fairly easy to to pretty much make a career out of publishing the technical research on cryptozoological data, if only there were the time and the, the funding and stuff, and you know, and if you were dedicated to that alone, I, I think, I mean, I've got like two or three things on the go with, with several in the background, and um, yeah, there's, there's there's a lot of work to do, but um, yeah, the Orang Pendek thing, it's, it's, it's going along in the background, and um, yeah, that's, that's a cryptid that I mm, consider at least moderately reasonable, I think
0: This episode is brought to you by Bumper.com. Buying a car doesn't have to be so intimidating. Bumper.com
2: is here for you, the buyers. With just a few clicks, it can help give you a comprehensive vehicle report that highlights any red flags. So wherever you're buying a car from, whether it's a dealership or a used marketplace, you can go in knowing Bumper.com has your back. Make your car buying experience smoother and smarter. Check out Bumper.com slash
3: podcast.
1: I was going to ask to to prove something like the Orang Pendek, What sort of further evidence would you need?
3: to prove it? I mean you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to prove it unless you obviously you know, had a, had a dead one and a DNA profile and and so on because because even with um Describing any species from bits and pieces, even if, it, even if you had data as good as, let's say, a complete limb or a skull, you still wouldn't convince the majority of people in, in, in the community. And that's fairly reasonable. You know, I, I don't expect to, expect it to be any other way. All you can do at the moment with, with a small amount of data like hairs and so on. You know, small bits of data. You can you can put the idea out there and say, look, well, this this appears to be hair from a hominid. It's not from an orangutan, but it's similar to an orangutan. It's not from a human. Um, it seems to be from an unknown an unknown hominid. And uh, you could say, uh, yeah, you could say the same for species that you that you um, describe um, mm-hmm. on the basis of yeah, like a, a skull or whatever. So it's kind of um, one step closer, but but no, mm-hmm. you wouldn't. You wouldn't um, all of a sudden convert every uh, skeptical zoologist, and I wouldn't expect it to be that way. Yeah, fair enough.
2: <laughs> uh, you know, but but finding a good hair profile, and then if they were able to extract DNA and it showed comparable to what they would expect for an unknown uh, primate, mm. uh, that, that's awfully compelling, I have to say. But I'm I'm still probably gonna, yeah want to see the body, you know, yeah. <laughs> or the live <laughs> yeah. specimen. We don't have to kill it, but.
3: Uh, <laughs> That's a tricky subject, to kill or not to kill, isn't it? Um, not, not just for your um, token cryptids, but um, but for, for new species uh, in, in general. Um, I, 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 I mean, I personally don't like the idea of killing animals. I don't think people should just go out and kill things for, you know, not for just collecting. But, but I'm Unless it's Bigfoot. Abso- well, yeah, you absolutely need to. And for something like... Like Bigfoot, how would you ever convince anyone unless you did kill it? And the death of one individual—we're um, talking hypotheticals, obviously—but let's say let's say Bigfoot's real. Let's say you, you kill one, you've got to kill it in order to demonstrate to everyone that it's that it's real. Um, no amount of anecdotal evidence, no amount of um, you know video footage or um, little bits of data, hairs or whatever, is going is to convince people enough to really make a difference. And the implications of some of these alleged creatures, and, and Sasquatch is top of the list, the implications are huge if if they did exist. I mean, not only in terms of how people think about themselves and where we fit, where our species fits in the natural world, but also in terms of um, conservation, um, environmental protection, economics. I'm sure you've heard these stories from uh, John Bindanagel talks about them in uh, his book, that um, supposedly loggers are, are not supposed to, they're, <laughs> they're told not to report Sasquatch, Sasquatch sightings because um, let's say it's real, then it could have a huge impact on where people can log. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, some, some, some animals of cryptozoological interest could have just the most astounding impact, should, mm-hmm. they, should they prove to be
2: real. The thing about Bigfoot is, I think the kill or don't kill. the the, the one risk is that it's someone in a suit, right? And and, and this, yeah. But but as far as it, the, if you look at the number of claims, right, that that implies, uh, since they're in every state but Hawaii, according to the the sightings. I think
3: Hawaii as well. People say that well, you know I think Hawaii has a hairy hominid of some sort.
2: Oh really? <laughs>
3: <laughs> I'm sure I've read it in the literature. Yeah, There's, there isn't a place in the world that doesn't have a hairy hominid.
2: Yeah, uh, literally. That, <laughs> well, right. That 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 makes me suspect even more that it's more of a psychological thing than a.
3: Well, yeah. yeah, you know that people claim to have seen these kinds of creatures in in Europe, as in Spain, France, the UK, um, and there's there's one there's one report from uh, South Antarctica. I mean, it just it just seems that the the kind of motif of the 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 sort. Of, uh, man-ape hybrid, the hairy hairy monster man-ape thing just does seem to be a thing that goes everywhere with us. It's kind of like part of our sort of cultural baggage and kind of maybe that's because we're all programmed to see the human shape um, you know, everywhere we look I, I don't know. I, I certainly think there is a, a big um, kind of socio-cultural, psychological kind of component to the to the phenomenon doesn't mean there isn't a you know biological signal in there as well
1: and i was just curious to find out where are the claims coming from in the uk
3: there's um a place called Bowland lake somewhere in northern england mm-hmm. um oh dear my is really gonna let me down there i think it's somewhere so forest like... areas and yes, right yeah yeah i mean we're only talking about a handful of uh, sightings, and again, you know, imagine sightings in quotes there. But it's, I think it's kind of like friend of a friend stories. But mm-hmm. a few years ago no, it, it did actually get quite a lot of media coverage. People claiming to see this um, black um, gorilla-like creature running around in the woods, and there was and there was a photograph taken of one. Uh, and it, uh, forgive me, because this may not actually be the same case. I can't pretend to follow this in great detail. But um, there was a photograph, and that did turn out to be a hoax. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think anybody really takes these seriously. Um, the same for the, the Spanish um, and, and French sightings and so on. But they can be used to um, to kind of uh, throw a bit of sort of cold water on the fire when people are talking about, you know, it, it, it kind of helps to... Um, it's, it sort of shows that the, that you we have to be careful and you know be, be really cautious in like you know the the idea that these things are, I mean, these things everywhere i mean this, this, this came up a lot in discussion lately on my my site when we were talking about the Yowie in australia mm-hmm. i mean for, for many people that 's kind of a real a real problem. The idea that there might be a bigfoot like animal living in Australia just seems utterly ridiculous and um,
1: in the blue mountains. <laughs>
3: Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, and 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 again, you know, not not just not just in the kind of sensible places as well, but but um, yeah, well, reporting. Well, the, well, you know, Australia.
2: Also, I was going to say, Australia also has the uh, the people who spot thylacines, which I would love yeah. to be still alive. That'd be fantastic, unless I was a chicken farmer or something. But I mean, in general, I think having having thylacines still be alive would be great. So that reminds me of the. Um, the idea of seeing something that ought not be there but is a perfectly real animal, right? So uh, a lot of times, or at least I guess in, you know what, sort of maybe in the late 90s, uh, the alien big cat phenomena seemed to really right. hit the UK. Um, you um, mentioned it when we were doing our correspondence that that, that seemed like a plausible thing and at least it's a real animal. What, yeah. what What are your thoughts about the alien big cats?
3: absolutely confident that we have here here in the UK we definitely have um, more than one species of non-native cat running around in the countryside we actually seem to have jungle cats which this is an animal of northern Africa the Middle East and um, all the way across Asia to India and so on it's not very big it's only about a third larger than a domestic cat Then we definitely have uh, leopard cats, which are similar sized spotted cat from uh, Asia, not to be confused with the leopard, it's called the leopard cat. We definitely sometimes have lynxes, which again is about, you know, say four times the size of a domestic cat, and we seem to have pumas and leopards as well. It sounds ridiculous to claim that all these animals are there. Um, I'm confident they are there because um, for jungle cats, leopard cats, lynxes and pumas, we have dead ones. We have animals that have been hit by cars or have been shot. Uh, They still exist, they're in museums or they've been photographed before they were buried. Um, And the uh, field evidence that we have, uh, and that includes photographs and video footage as well as tracks and hairs, is absolutely, oh livestock kills and kills of um, deer and other animals. Absolutely, absolutely compelling. I've got no doubt about this at all. Um, and we're now at the start of the stage where people are putting this stuff into the proper literature. There was a paper published um, last year um, in, I think it was Journal of Archaeological Science, on tooth pit data. So this archaeologist, um, Ross Coward, I think he's called, he became interested in the idea that there might be alien big cats. Uh, I really hate the term alien big cats because it, it's attached, because obviously people, when they hear alien, they think of UFOs mm. and stuff, so it's got like a, a bad connotation. But it does, but you can see the that These animals might be there. <laughs> if they are there, and they're responsible for you know killing sheep on Dartmoor or whatever, then you should be able to find evidence for their bite marks on bones. So he collected a huge number of bones from, I think it was whales, and uh, compared the bite marks with those of all the known carnivorans, so with red foxes and badgers and feral dogs and whatever, and he did find a sample of um, bite marks on bones found in the UK that match uh, leopards and pumas. So, um, and the the evidence is uh, the evidence is just is just so good. I think anyone who now kind of denies the existence of um, non-native cats in the UK is either not aware of the evidence at all, or they are deliberately being difficult and some people certainly in um, kind of conservation um, bodies are kind of deliberately saying these animals aren't there for for, for whatever whatever reason and in, in a way I kind of think it isn't a big deal because we know again we know without doubt that um, even the most exotic, specialised cat can escape in the British countryside. Britain isn't a particularly difficult place to live for a cat. It doesn't suffer from any extremes of climate and there's plenty of things to kill, plenty of places to hide if you're in the right areas. Um, we know these animals can escape. They can, they can hide out. They may disappear. They may get shot. Um, and when I said this, you know, this is the case for even the most specialised of cats, I say that because um, a clouded leopard, which is um, not a leopard. It's you know a distinct kind of big cat, uh, famous for its very really long tail. It's it's got really long um, canine teeth, and it's famous for being particularly arboreal, very good climber. One of those escaped from Howlett Zoo, and I think it was 1975. This is the most specialised, the most tropical of the big cats, and it lived in the wild for I think it's about a year until it was eventually <laughs> shot, uh, and it wow. was. Um, Perfectly healthy, it was in good condition. It had been eating, killing, and eating sheep. Um, and if the clouded leopard can do that, well, why is, it's no—it's basically no surprise at all that animals like pumas and leopards, which are the ultimate generalists. I mean, they can live everywhere, and they do. You know, pumas are found from the tip of southern South America right up to you know the far north of Canada. There's just no problem with these animals making a living once they get out. All they have to do is get out and and. Again, we've got good data showing that, that um, people have not only deliberately released them over time, but also the animals escape fairly regularly um, from from zoos that uh, maybe aren't so good, but also from really good zoos. I, I, I could... Discuss cases I know of in recent years where um, people have built expensive new enclosures for leopards but there's one little thing they haven't thought of and the cat has been able to exploit that and escape and uh, in those cases they've sometimes lost the cat and it's just gone and they never see it again so <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that, in a nutshell, is my, <laughs> my general thinking about British Big Cats.
2: Wow. So that's a lot more positive uh, than the uh, documentaries I've seen on it. That's really interesting. So, wow, I'm going to have to go find some of these uh, accounts well, and look at the, the literature a little closer.
3: Well, the, the problem is, I would say, is that, okay, everything, well, much of the stuff I've just told you that actually doesn't exist in the literature, um, I think that the people interested in British Big Cats kind of full-time, you know, if they're like main sort of passion, um, this does link to some of the stuff we were talking about earlier on. I think they've actually done a really poor job in actually making this data well-known. And they certainly have done a terrible job in getting it into the literature. Now, I do appreciate that, you know, as a publishing scientist, my perspective on this is, is kind of different from from theirs, because if I discover something new, if I see, you know, whatever it is, you know, something I'm interested in, a, a new specimen or a new bit of behavior or whatever, I immediately think, you know, well, there's a little paper there. Might might only be a day's work, you know, two-page paper. You can publish it very easily. Um, particularly if it's something to do with animal behaviour or a new record, you can. There's so many little, like biology magazines or journals or whatever. You can easily get these things out there. Um, nobody's done that with this huge pile of data on British big cats. And I've I've actually been to. There's there's an annual meeting that's held in this country, um, on the british big cat phenomenon and I've said at this meeting you guys have got to work harder to get your stuff in journals like there's a thing called British Wildlife which is read by everyone interested in British wildlife and it's like they they're fairly sympathetic to the british big cat phenomenon um, you could easily say you know we found this diagnostic kill we found this uh, scat this this um, you know um, trackway we've got this photograph which is definitive put it out there easy just you know, to get the community to you know, appreciate how good the evidence is, and this hasn't been done. So in frustration, this is something I've taken on myself, which I really wish I hadn't. It's, it's another project that's kind of like on the back burner for several years, myself and, and, a, and a colleague, John McGowan, who's um, very interested in British Big Cats. Um, we've been trying to write up a technical paper that, that talks about yeah, the tracks, the, the hairs, the um, the droppings, the diagnostic kills, and some of the better photographic evidence. And I know that if this was done, and if we published it somewhere like Journal of Zoology, which is you know kind of what I have in mind, you'd have all that data there in one go. And at the moment, you don't have that. You have to go through a load of popular books that um, often read like... Um, they're kind of, you know, adventure diaries. They're like my personal adventure Sure, sure, uh, sure. Uh, very common in cryptology literature. Um, I, I'm not saying they've done a bad job. You know, they're, they're, that, that's a, a you know, fairly nice body of literature, but, but you just don't have people doing the job properly and actually getting the data out there. So well, it's
2: the, the delineation issue, isn't it? I mean, the, between popular... Uh, this is a hobby and this is an actual journalistic type science, right? Yeah, that's right. So it's got to be taken more seriously if there's real things there. So, right, it would be like the guys who claim they found Bigfoot in Georgia. Now, Hmm. if I found a Bigfoot and killed it, the very first thing I would do after making sure it wasn't a guy in a suit and I didn't need to get rid of a body is is contact some biologists uh, immediately. And because – it's got to be examined, written up, diagnosed, drawn up, and published. If, if yeah. science happens in the journals, not in my diary, right? Not on That's my blog, right? Yeah. right? So, yeah. uh, and
1: I was going to ask, how do amateurs become involved in academia?
3: Well, they they have to cooperate with um, people who are able to. You have the smarts to to do this, uh, and if they do that, they've got n- there is no problem at all with them getting the appropriate credit. Uh, I think that's one of the issues. They're concerned that if they suddenly, you know, if they phone up Dr. So-and-so at the local museum and say, we've got a dead Bigfoot, then that person is going to take it away and publish it. And the finders are not going to get the credit. Well, that just that just will not happen. Um, if anything, the there's... You, you probably know this, but maybe it's not well known enough. The, there's a big thing today, uh, a big kind of you know, ethical movement, where people are making sure that the right people get the credit for doing research. And going to the trouble of, of you know, finding and procuring and retrieving, let's say, the carcass of a mystery animal, that's a huge amount of work. Um, I'm absolutely sure that, hypothetically, if someone were to discover one of the big famous cryptids, um, the finder would would uh, they they wouldn't have to do the hard graph, They wouldn't have to you know write the technical paper and do the DNA profiling and everything. You could get people to do that for you, but um, but the, the finder would get the credit. Um, the problem with some of these cases is obviously, well I'm, I'm thinking of the more dis- the dis- ones. They, they they obviously were interested in kind of fame and fortune, and um, mm. that that uh, Georgia. Um,
0: Oh right, uh, the Jordan mm-hmm.
3: Bigfoot, yeah, thing, the thing, hoax thing, but um, what's this, Matt Matt Rick or whatever they call it? Some crazy name for it. But um, yeah, it's it's a matter of contacting the right people. And uh, and to today, I mean, what with the internet and everything, that is like easier than ever before. You that you have no excuse at all for not finding the relevant person in the field and the the relevant you know expert and talking to them and. Um, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Well, there's
2: a lot of distrust in cryptozoology. I mean, Mm. that between researchers, right? Which always bothers me because, right? That in in science, if I understand it correctly, which I'm not a professional working scientist, but you, if you're worried about people getting on your stuff, you publish a general paper and then come back with something more specific later. You you lay your stake out. You stake your claim, I guess. Mm
3: -hmm. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People do do a lot of kind of. Well, territorial marking, if you like. Right. Um, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> there, there are there are all kinds of little battles and warring factions, and so on, in every every single branch of science. Yeah, no, no doubt. But um, I, I don't, I, I can't see that, that that would be a problem with um, with any of any of these uh, any of the superstars of Kripper's Orgy.
2: No, I don't think so. Even if you go back to like, what was it? Um... The, uh, the Discovery of Cosmic Microwave Background Radiation. Mm.
3: The,
2: uh, those guys got a Nobel Prize, and they weren't even looking for it. And while Meanwhile, in another lab, people were looking for it deliberately and, and didn't find it. So yeah, they, the credit went to the guys who found it even by accident, right? So yeah, I think science mm. is pretty good. You know, it, I trust my science
3: pretty well. You should. You should. <laughs> I, I think, yeah, a lot of this mistrust is, is completely misplaced and just kind of comes from... Without wanting to sound really does kind of come from ignorance about the way things work and and also about what people are like. I mean, bear in mind that a lot of the I, th- I think there's, there's also there's also the implication that that scientists because they often are paid to pursue their interests they kind of you know, have like a big financial stake in it, or whatever. But but loads of us do. I mean, most of the work we do is basically done kind of for fun and for free. I mean. Uh, the the weird research that I've done that sort of surrounds the core of like kind of um, PhD based research I've done has, has done been done entirely on my own time, my own kind of funding um, and, and that is absolutely common absolutely typical. Scientists generally almost without exception are you know interested in it for the sake of um, getting the data out there. That might mean you know putting forward your own cherished hypothesis, obviously you do get, you do get, um, um, you know, it's, there is kind of some ego stroking involved, sure, but um, yeah, we, do, we want the data out there. It's, it's not, there's nobody's interested in keeping these things to themselves, keeping them locked away, not letting people see them, and you do see that in the cryptological yeah. community.
1: That is often a claim as well. And earlier you were talking about uh, evidence um, that's found by cryptozoologists and that it's usually bad evidence. But I was just wondering as a broad question, have there been any new creatures that have been discovered by lay people, by cryptozoologists?
3: Mm. (laughs) I think most of the new species I can think of that have been named in recent years have been found by biologists, qualified biologists who've gone out into the field and seen them. There, there must come, there must be some cases though where um, I can't think of any particularly good ones off the top of my head, but I'm sure there must be cases where someone has you know donated a a bird or a lizard or something to a museum and it's and it's been named as a new species. I mean obviously that turns out that that, that happens all the time. But all, all of the larger more impressive animals, terrestrial or, or marine, have been yeah been found by by biologists, and I can think of many cases in recent years where. Um, They've gone to a you know a team has gone to a certain area to do a survey and they've learnt from the local people about um, you know this this primate or this bird or this antelope or whatever and uh, and that has turned out to be a major a major new discovery. But um yeah um no I'm afraid I can't I can't think of any but that doesn't mean they don't <laughs> exist. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. And uh, you've written a lot about Caddy and the the famous photo of an alleged corpse sometimes called the Naden uh, Harbour carcass. Right. Could yeah, you tell yeah. our listeners a bit about the photograph in your analysis?
3: Yeah, so, um, so people have been reporting this long-bodied um, sea monster with large eyes and supposedly with horns or hair. Uh, they've been talking about it since, well, for a long time, I think certainly since the 1800s, um, the late 1800s. And hmm. that, that creature has become known as, as Cadbrosaurus, and people have got a fairly clarity of what it's, what it's meant to look like. Um, During the 1990s, it was discovered by two uh, scientists who are particularly interested in uh, Caprosaurus, Ed Boosfield and Paul LeBlond. They um, rediscovered in archives some photographs taken in 1932 at a whale-flending platform uh, in the Queen Charlotte Islands, British Columbia, a place called uh, a, a carcass had apparently been retrieved from the stomach of a sperm whale at this, uh, this uh, friendly platform, um, Maiden Harbour, um, whales, the whaling station. And apparently the whalers had recognised the carcass was extremely unusual. They'd put it on wooden crates and they'd photographed it. And the story goes. Um, that they uh, the, the, the carcasses of unknown whereabouts nobody knows what happened to the carcass and it's been suggested that it was sent either to the biological station at the NAMO or to the uh, museum in, in British Columbia in Victoria British Columbia But so the carcass is gone you know, very familiar story in cryptozoology but um, the photographs Remain, and the photographs do seem to show a creature that matches with the Cadbrosaurus creature that people have been talking about for ages. So, Boosford and Blonde suggested that they are one and the same. They suggested that the carcass is actually a carcass of this Cadbrosaurus creature. So, they're not only saying that it's real; they're saying that we we had a carcass, we've lost it, but these photographs are uh, definitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and. A prop. Well, they, they did publish... Uh, Boussfield and LeBlanc published a very lengthy paper, um, a very controversial paper. They were bold enough to name the carcass as a new species. So they actually formally erected Cadborosaurus willsie as kind of like a proper scientific name. They said that, that all the kind of salient features of Cadborosaurus are obviously present in the carcass. And they even... Identified the animal. They said you can tell from the photograph that it's a reptile, and that specifically it belongs to a group of fossil reptiles called plesiosaurs. Um, and that's kind of, and they only they used quite they, they used eyewitness evidence to sort of back up their um their, their claims and and so on. They 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 drew in quite a lot of um yeah you know, different bits and pieces from the uh, cryptozoological literature. So a huge deal if if they're right. Um, I'm certainly um, sceptical about kind of all the different stages of inference involved in this. Um, I would like to see a proper, detailed investigation done of the carcass, uh, of, well, of the photographs of the carcass, given that the carcass itself is lost, and there are conflicting reports on on what it is. Now, it does appear to be a long-bodied, peculiar vertebrate. Um, If it is, does it match with the Cabrasaurus creature that people claim to have seen, or is it something else? Is it it actually the distorted carcass of some other creature that just happens to look like uh, the Cabrasaurus entity that, you know, people say exists?
2: It's a lot to digest. (laughs)
3: It
2: was just (laughs) a little digestion joke (laughs) there.
3: (laughs) <laughs> Basically, a, a proper analysis needs to be done of of that photograph, and that's something else that's uh, that's um, kind of in the works. Um, some investigation has been done of the actual eyewitness data that Boosven and Von used to back up their hypotheses uh, on um, cabrosaurus. But certainly all of their stuff about identifying it, um, you know, their claim that it's a living plesiosaur, well, that was very easy to uh, kind of well, demolish seems to be too hard a word, but it, 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 it was pretty easy to kind of show big holes in their logic. See, on the one hand, there, I think there is a biological mystery there that does need investigation. On the other hand, they definitely, Boosford and Lidlund definitely, without a shadow of a doubt, went way too far in, um, you know, what you can do with the, with the data that you have. Uh, mm-hmm. Kind of a classic case of kind of... Um, sort of a a runaway hypothesis, you might call it. But basically, they built up a huge house of cards on what this animal might be like, how it might have behaved, how it might have bred, all this kind of stuff. And um, I I certainly think that the the carcass is very intriguing and needs proper analysis. But, um, yeah, there's skepticism needed at every single level of this this case. Not only the eyewitness data, but um, skepticism about the carcass, Skepticism about the uh, the yeah the, the different eyewitness reports that the Van Bond used. So, um, right. I mean, I... do, do we
2: ha- do we have any reason to suspect that it wasn't a hoax? I mean, I mean, yeah. th- people um, were doing hoaxes back then. It wasn't like hoaxes were invented in the fifties, you know. I mean, uh, it's such an unusual shaped head. I, I've always been really curious about that. If that really is the head at all?
3: Yeah, I, I published a paper on this in um, a short-lived peer-reviewed cryptozoology publication called the Cryptozoology Review, which unfortunately seems to have kind of vanished. <laughs> um, these days, people <laughs> seem to have heard of it. But, um, Sorry, that The Maiden Harbour carcass came from 19... <laughs> w- was supposedly photographed in 1932. And in uh, some si- similar time, something like 1934, there's another set of photographs taken very close by I've forgotten the, the, the location, it will come to me. But um, that is also alleged to be a long-bodied caddy carcass um, photographed on the shore of uh, British Columbia. And that one, um, I'm absolutely convinced, is a kelp stem with a rock posing as a skull and then like a muscle used as, a, as an eye um, socket and various bits of flotsam and jetsam and bits of plants and stuff used to um, produce a fairly realistic-looking caddy carcass. So I totally take your point. I absolutely agree. Um, I think people were in the habit of... That that case shows that they were in the habit of generating hoaxes at about the same time and in roughly the same place. Um, But whether this goes for the Maiden Harbour one as well, I I don't know. I mean, um, whether the... Because Boosford and Ruban, as, as you just said, they said there's a camel-like head, they say there's an obvious pectoral flipper, and they say there's um, a bilobed, fluked tail. But um, if you look really, really closely, it's, yeah, all of those claims are questionable. So, um, yeah, I don't want to kind of give too much away, but basically there, there definitely is um, scope there for... Um, for like a proper analysis, I mean, it, the the suggestion is already in the literature that it's a basking shark carcass that has been made because um, one author, he's he's now an ichthyologist. Um, he um he, he was he wasn't when he started the study. He was just like a, an undergrad student, but um he's claimed that you can definitely see distinctive features of basking shark vertebrae on the body segments of the Nathan harbor carcass
2: we've had the so. glint cuban on because i guess a basking shark can as it decomposes does sort of right. favor plesiosaur that's
3: uh that's right yeah, so. yeah yeah the the harbor thing is weird though because it because it just seems to be so long-bodied and it's got these kind of like loops in it it doesn't look like the Zoya myra carcass or any of the other um pseudo plesiosaur right
2: carcass. it's it's intriguing of course i love old photographs anyway i mean that's Mm. Oh, I love
3: them! I lo- <laughs> they are cool. This, this one is very cool, and the yeah. fact that the photographs are good enough for for big, you know, they've been able to zoom in pretty close and look at quite a lot of the detail on on the on the tail and stuff. But but the boost for the really did go too far in, in how much information they they thought they could uh, kind of get out of it. So so yeah, thing will always remain a possibility, but. Um, yeah, I, I, I just, I just don't know. I, I think it's, I think it's a weird vertebrate carcass of some sort. I don't think it's anything like a, a, um, like a, a kelp stem, like the other one. The name of which I was trying to remember. But um, yeah, yeah. So what you said remains valid, and um, <laughs> yeah, we'll see, where it goes.
2: Yeah, well, you've you've uh, been very generous with your time. Uh, we're going to have to have you back again.
3: Cool. Yeah, I'd love
1: it. Yeah. A lot more to talk about.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is well, I've learned some things today too. This is nice. So. Me too. Uh, yeah, this is very informative. Well, I enjoyed it. Thank you. I want to ask you about Kate Bush and several other things. <laughs>
1: oh, well. <laughs> We're both fans. You can, if you can if you want to. We can
3: save it until the next time. No, we'll save it. We'll save it.
2: Monster Talk. Thanks for listening to this episode of Monster Talk. Today you heard Blake Smith and Dr. Karen Stolzno interviewed Dr. Darren Nash on the intersection of cryptozoology and science. If you enjoyed this conversation, you can continue it on our forums at skepticblog.com. Monster Talk is produced with the support of Skeptic Magazine. Music from today's episode comes from the Commodore 64 game, Mail Order Monsters, and our theme song is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Be sure and follow Monster Talk's hosts on Facebook and Twitter. And if you like the show, tell a friend, and we'd love to get a review on iTunes. Check out skeptic.com or monstertalk.org for more information. Thanks again for listening.
0: stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit skeptic.com to sign up.
2: So do you consider yourself to be a skeptic? A skeptic, what is that?